I don't want to be dramatic or sound like a fanatic, but I'm emphatic that our erratic organization causes clutter in the attic, and we get stuck on automatic, personality monochromatic, till it becomes too problematic and we're just addicts to the static. Look, I know the situation. Sometimes we lack the motivation to take control of the narration. Nothing but stagnation and fixation on aspiration and frustration. Let's end our mind's starvation and begin reallocation of priorities and foundation. So throw darts at question marks, less like a lamb, more like a shark, driving for goals never in park, little less bark, little more heart, starting to embark on making our mark from before dawn till after dark. This is the mind spark. Welcome to the Mind Spark. This is Daniel. I'm here with Feely and Jason. And today we're talking about how knowing is not enough. Um, this comes up because of uh, a lot of different things we've been talking about recently. But uh, one of the major trends that has been really popular lately is the whole Marie Kondo method and her show on Netflix. Um, one of the things that came to my mind as I was, as I started watching it was, that these people are making some big changes in their life. They're starting to organize their their possessions and get rid of things. And they all have this feeling of like relief that, you know, I'm so glad that I've been able to organize my stuff and, and weed out things I don't need anymore and stuff like that. And the thought came to my mind, well, why do we have to wait for this show to do that stuff? Why did these people have to wait for Marie Kondo to show up to start doing those things in their lives so maybe for us who haven't watched the show yeah uh, what is the show about so essentially she's uh, from Japan she has written a book called the life-changing magic of tidying up and I think there's another book she's written as well but the whole point is to um, go through your all of your possessions systematically there's a five-step process go through your entire home and tidy up your stuff. And part of that is a weeding out process, going in and saying, is this item something that I still need? Does it bring joy to my life? Her, her phrase is, does it spark joy? Um, is it something that contributes to my life or am I okay getting rid of it? And so you kind of get rid of stuff that you don't need anymore that maybe, you know, you just kept around because you never took the time to get rid of it. Um, but in the end, the idea is that not only have you tidied your entire house, but you've also made changes in yourself to never start cluttering your house again. And um, it's pretty interesting. There's an article written by Jennifer Lazat for CNN. Um, and she says that in Marie Kondo's book, she promises 19 times that followers of the method will never rebound, that they won't start having cluttered houses ever again. Um, the, the concept being that this is not just uh, spring cleaning. This is a whole lifestyle change brought about. So, th- so you, this show is different than your average hoarder episode. <laughs> yeah. Where it's, it's blatantly obvious that these people have 700 pizza boxes in their living room. You know, this is more geared towards the average individual. So is it a deep clean or is it just... A reorganization of what you have. A little bit of both. Um, I was actually a little worried when I started watching the show that it would be like another hoarders type thing where they, she shows up and it's just this, you know, unrecognizable living space. And I'm like, if it's like that, I'm, I'm not going to watch it because my life isn't like that. My house isn't like that. Um, it's not. It doesn't really help me learn anything. But in the episodes, it kind of shows people in different stages in life. Um, and it's pretty realistic. Like you go into a house and it's like not a, com- it's not in shambles, but it does need some tidying up and some weeding out. And so the first thing she has them do is go get all their clothes and take everything out of every drawer, everything off of every hanger and put it in a pile in the center of the room. So yeah, you're cleaning everything out and then you're going through each item individually to determine, is this something that I need? Is this something that I don't? And I think that everyone knows I should probably do that. Well, the, you know, you, you mentioned before, um, 
the counter to this, you know, the opposition behind this movement, you know, the critics of the show would say, why do I need you and your methods to tell me how to be clean, how to organize, and maybe they see her in a way as an extremist, like you're going to an extreme yeah. with either the spiritualism of thinking every item, of, of the energy of your home. But on the other hand, an extreme is always good to move people that are immovable, you know? Because yeah. um, sometimes it does take an extreme for action to occur. You know, people talk about, hey, I had a life de death experience. Now I know how to appreciate my mom. And it's like, well, you should have known how to appreciate your mom the whole time, right? Yeah. Did you need this life de death experience? So I guess the topic today is kind of along those lines saying, Knowing is not enough. Right. Knowing that you should probably go through your house and organize things from time to time isn't always enough to motivate us to do it. Everyone, I think, knows they probably ought to keep their stuff organized and get rid of things they don't need. But yet, a lot of times we put it off or we just don't ever do it because we're afraid of how long it will take or it doesn't. Really, we don't feel like it impacts our lives. We have that one junk drawer that we're okay with having. And then this show comes along and a lot of people start to grab onto it. And it's kind of interesting because then you start, you know, going through Facebook or whatever and you have friends that are like, oh, I just went through my kitchen and did the Marie Kondo method and I got rid of all this stuff and look and they take pictures and all that. And so it's kind of like they have this opportunity to show off what they've done and then other people want to join in in that. It kind of becomes like this small fad. See, that, that reminds me a lot of, like, New Year's resolutions. There's, you know, we take this time of the year to say, hey, I'm going to improve something. 99% of people are probably like, I'm going to lose weight. But we need an event. We need this trigger. And then we also, depending on how we handle it and how we share with others, we may be very public about it, like, in the public uh, like a public commitment out loud to tell everybody, hey, guys, I'm going to start going to the gym and I made a plan and I made a gym membership and I bought shoes and I combed my hair and I'm going to go to the gym. And, and now that, to some people, is now that I've said it, I've committed and I have to follow through or else there's a social shame pressure of some sort that now people are really going to know that I was trying something and I failed or I gave up. But that's kind of become the norm. Now we, we kind of make fun of New Year's resolutions as if uh, nobody ever makes them. They become a joke. And, you know, the critics of, of, of this style would also say that, do you really need the new year to decide to do something positive? I like decluttering when I feel I'm, I want efficiency. I want to find something right away. I know exactly where it is. I hate when I lose stuff and where I think I have organized stuff, right? You know, how many rolls of Gorilla Tape have I bought over the years because I never put the Gorilla Tape back in one spot? And so, but then when I clean, I find 300 Gorilla Tape rolls, <laughs> you know? So can you be a hoarder and be organized? Or do they not go together? I think I think it's that's called a warehouse. <laughs> yeah, it's called Costco. <laughs> well, you see, like the extreme couponers, you know, they have like their their stash of stuff, and it's meticulously organized. But it's like four hundred tubes of toothpaste. So like, when are you ever going to use that? Well, now I know I'll never run out of toothpaste. But every time there's a deal, they have to go buy more toothpaste. It's very organized, but it's way over the top. I wonder what the social uh, reward is for people, either to jump onto a fad and tweet about it, Facebook about it, and join you know the, a movement, and and pretend as if this has always been part of my life. You know, like we do that all the time, and, and it's kind of no, that's you've you're clean now because you read a book. Five years from now, I want to see what your life is like, right? Like we tend to do. We tend to do positive changes in little spurts that don't necessarily last. Yes, yeah, so, but yeah. never long enough to create a habit that'll stay around. But you said at the beginning that most people who start this and go through it 
don't slip. She's promised she promises 19 times in the book in different port, uh, parts of the book that followers of the method will never rebound. Well, that's kind of weird because I mean, I could say if you follow my method and you always do it, you'll always get the outcome of my method. The problem is what happens when people don't follow the method, then they would rebound, right? That's like, that's a very sketchy promise because, you know, I, I could say, you know, I have, a, I have a training method. As long as you follow it, you'll be able to bench press 300 pounds. And then if I say I couldn't bench press 300 pounds. And you pounds, didn't follow my method. Right. <laughs> right? So, so with any method, you have, I mean, it has to be, has to create within you a habit, right, to be continuous. So does she give any kind of time frame on how long you have to do her method until it grabs hold as a habit? No. Um, it, it appears that it's, like, I think it's five steps, and mainly it's based on the categories of, of sorting, so clothing, and then ones like your kitchen and bathroom. There's like, I think the fifth one, the last one is like sentimental items. So it's not necessarily how long it should take you or how whatever. I haven't read the book either. I've just seen the show and it kind of shows a snapshot. So, so perhaps the steps are so simple and they make such common sense that it's like, yeah, put your socks on before your shoes. I mean, we teach yeah. our children that. So maybe in the back of your head, it's like, yeah, Put your pants here and your shirts here because that makes sense. Well, one of the things that you, you know she does is she gets you to get all your clothes and make a big pile. And I think there's a very visual shock and awe moment when you look at your items that aren't tucked away, hidden in drawers, hidden in hangers, and it, and it's a relevant method. And that principle is kind of. It's in almost every self-help improvement, you know, take look at the reality of the situation, you know, and then you can start saying, well, I, I do have a lot. Or you can say you have a very small pile. You don't have very much. Right. Um, that that seems sensible. That seems applicable through many things. But I think the gist of it is why do we require these external triggers or external fads or social movements or whatever to get us to do something we should know to do or want to do. Why is, why is it not enough just to know good habits? You know, we have people who, who smoke and then we know in our day and age, without a shadow of a doubt, that it leads to many, many health problems. And it leads to a very terrible death or a very horrible, you know, quality of life at the end of your life, right? But people still do it. It's still worth it. The, the immediate gratification or the immediate uh, social thing about it is worth enough reward to them that cancer in 20 years, it's like, meh, maybe. Maybe they'll fix cancer by then. I don't know. Well, it's just like people. Just it's just like people that say, "Yeah, I probably shouldn't drink," you know. But well, then, I, I've had twelve donuts. I probably shouldn't get one. Yeah, I probably. <laughs> I shouldn't eat this much sugar. I know I shouldn't say this, but that's <laughs> yeah. a very popular. So I read a really interesting article. It was on um, uh, todaypsychology.org or something like that. It was by this person uh, named. Hera Murano, and uh, the title of it was called Lasting Change. And uh, she mentions uh, some things here that she says, the biggest obstacle that people face in getting what they want in life is the failure to define what it is they really want. And then she continues, uh, society, our parents, our religions, and even psychology in our movies teach us that life is a struggle. As long as that is what we believe, then that is what we will get, because we are not powerful enough to create it. As Henry Ford once said, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you are right. And then in closing, you know, in summarizing the article, it says, uh, fears and doubts are so unpleasant that most people go to considerable lengths to cover them up or banish them. 
We use alcohol, cigarettes, food, drugs, overwork, and even positive thinking to distract ourselves from feeling them. But that is just like calling your smoke alarm negative and attacking it with a baseball bat. Their purpose is to warn us that there are specific underlying beliefs that are endangering us, holding us back. Instead of quenching the smoke alarm, we should fix the fire. And I, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we, we see a lot of posts or comments or things that people, you see the underlying theme of people trying to talk themselves into how they should feel. Or we have community justice or social justice where we think we can agree that this behavior is bad. Together we'll ban and fix those feelings or fix that person so they don't feel that way. Shame on them to change in their behavior. And we never really enjoy or learn to live with how we really feel, you know? And so I, I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, the article talked about how you, you'll never get the change you want to be permanent if you never really bought into the fact that that's the kind of person you want to be. And so I, I, I was bouncing through several other articles and I came across like uh, four, four themes on lasting change and, um, and how, how things can be meaningful to a person. And, and the mechanism, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a book, whether it's a friend, whether it's an intervention, whether you just observe somebody else changing their life and you say, oh, I'd like to change it, um, the mechanism then becomes irrelevant. Like this, this lady and her book and her show could be a great tool for some people. And for others, it could totally miss the mark, right? But, you know, the, the first thing I, I found is, is you have to imagine and envision what you want and know what you want. You have to have a success criteria. The second one is be mindful of your fears, meaning understand what stresses you about wanting that. What are the possible things that can go wrong? You know, those type of things. And then learning to be mindful enough where you question your fears. Why is that fearful to you? It's not enough to just know this change or these habits are uncomfortable, but why? And then um, once you identify the beliefs and reasons you are afraid and uncomfortable, Envision and write down the kind of beliefs or person or habits that you would have to become to overcome those fears. What does the person... So if your fear is, I want to go to a gym, but I'm scared of how I look already. Or you don't have the, the internal motivation to just do push-ups at home and run by yourself on a treadmill. Go run alone. You need like a group environment and that's totally fine, right? But you don't want to go to the group environment because you already don't look fit. You may be out of breath. You're, you're fat. You sweat a lot. I don't, whatever it may be, right? But then you have to tell yourself what kind of a person can be in that situation and be comfortable. Is it a kind of person that, hey, this is part of the plan. It's not always going to be like this. you know? And you throw yourself in those scenarios. And there's many books of people that have done tremendous things, whether going through military butts training or, or things like that, where they say, I had to rewire my brain to tell myself I can be that kind of person. You know, I can be the kind of person that is always tidy. I can be the kind of person who doesn't smoke, that doesn't something else instead. But we we don't tell those stories or we don't we don't understand that success criteria. I think um, going kind of along those lines, we, we were talking the other day about preventative medicine and about how we everyone knows that they should probably eat better. Everyone knows that they should probably exercise more. Everyone knows they should go get a regular checkup and at a certain age, go get different checkups. But a lot of times we don't do it because we, we maybe think it's not important or it's not at the top of the priority list. But it's interesting because insurance companies and, and corporations will actually tend to give you like a, a rebate or something back if you do certain health challenges. And they know that there are some percentage of people that are going to go in and say they did it and they didn't, right? They'll go in and lie just to get the rebate. 
maybe they've done some of it, and so they say, well, I did it the first quarter, and so I'm going to count the rest. And they're okay with losing that money because they, they're in their minds, in the insurance company's mind, they're like, well, if people are at least giving it a try or it's at least on their mind, you know, I did say that I would eat better, uh, maybe I'll eat a salad this time. That even that minimal change is enough to save them money in the long run. So it's just interesting that we have this built-in mechanism that a lot of people will only do the health challenges because they're getting a rebate, not even knowing that it's going to make them healthier and live longer and a better life is enough. They have to be promised money back, right? <laughs> like there has to be a greater incentive to overcome like the, the, you know, maybe that's a problem where we, we fail to see the end in mind, you know, yeah. uh, it's hard for someone to envision uh, going to college for eight years, but then having a job where you're a doctor and you're making you know six figures, right? We we can we want the outcome, but it's hard for us to envision the path to get there. You know, like, and I, and I think a lot of parts of our lives are like I like that we we want you know the the fit body style or whatever but we eat whatever we want. And at some point you have to reconcile those two things. You have to say, well, I'm actually okay. I can change my expectation. And I'm okay because I live this lifestyle, right? Um, but I don't, I don't think people do that. You know, I was listening to uh, Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist. He has a pretty good podcast that I like listening to. Um, and he was talking about mindfulness. And how in schools they're they're starting to train kids on being mindful, and they try to do this with meditation, taking time to just meditate and think. And one of the things he mentions is it's very simple, but if you ask someone how do you feel right now, and for you having to just make that evaluation and say I feel fine, or I'm tired, or I'm a little bit sad, or I'm a little bit worried about my car that is parked outside and I'm not sure how much time I have on the meter. It helps, you know, those exercises help us to understand our feelings, understand why we feel the way we feel. And then you start seeing steps you can do to affect how you're feeling. Where people who aren't mindful, they say, oh, ah, that made me, I'm just angry. That made me so angry. But they don't see the causality of how it got to that point or what they can do to intervene or to ch change how they feel, you know? Yeah, and, and being more mindful will probably lead you to naturally make more changes, to make better changes in your life. When if, if you're aware that you're not healthy and you think about it on a regular basis, you know, not become obsessed with it, but to the point where you're, you know, able to say, you know, I, I do need to do this more. And then when the opportunity arrives to exercise or when, you go out to eat and you say, well, I've been more aware of my weight. I've been more aware of my cholesterol or whatever it may be. I should probably eat healthier. You're more likely to make changes. It will, the mindfulness takes knowing from just being a fact to being more applicable to you as a person. I think uh, another, another way about knowing is we talk about data, especially in in the realm of politics where they use, tend to use data to push a, a particular point or policy, uh, take climate change, for instance, where there are entire entities who study climate change and gather as much data as possible to be able to present, here's what's happening with climate change, here's the changes that are happening in our world um, in data form. but it doesn't matter how much data you collect rarely will that cause someone who is very entrenched in the opposite view to say oh I am overwhelmed by your data and information therefore I now believe everything you say knowing it isn't enough to create that change we, we look at a lot of situations like that where people are saying it would go by going back to the smoking thing you know we can show how many deaths occur because of smoking how likely each cigarette is to increase this or this or that. And it's like, yeah, 
I, I see what you mean, but I still like it. Or, you know, coffee does this or drinking does that or driving with one eye closed, you know, it, and it doesn't matter. Well, you, you see that in some horrific crimes, right? Yeah. You, you'll have a, a mom that gets up there on the news. My son, he's the, he, this is a tragedy. Uh, please, he didn't mean to. And then he was drunk and he was driving and he ran over somebody and killed him, right? It, does he regret it? Yes, absolutely. Is his regret genuine? Yes. You know, did he do it on purpose? No. Was he careless? Yes. And he was playing a lottery of, you see it in drunk driving all the time, you're playing a lottery that you may be okay 99% of the time, but it's that one time something terrific is going to happen and it's going to change somebody else's life and it's going to change your life. And most likely the person doing that knows that it's not right. Yeah. Knows know that drunk driving getting right. behind the wheel is not a good idea right now. But it's never been a problem before. I'll be fine. You know, it wasn't enough to make them change that behavior. You need to have true knowledge and principles to be able to act correctly. But not everyone will, will feel how you feel about something. You know, you may look at climate change and say, this has tremendous uh, repercussions in the future for us, for our society, for our national parks, for whatever, you know, for our planet. And somebody else may say, uh, it doesn't affect me. It won't be in my lifetime. I'm okay with it. And that person can be 100% genuine and right in how they feel. And so can the other person. But then we start a tug of war. You know? And I find the majority of times is we are not using the same definitions. We don't have the same criterias. Um, and if you really want to teach somebody, they have to, it has to be an experience unique to them. It has to be in a level that now you understand why it matters. You know? And to some people, it may never matter because they don't have any skin in that game. It's not something that for them matters, right? So in knowing is not enough, can you think of situations where you, once you learn something, it totally changed your behavior? You know? I, I think knowing is important. The more you know, the better off you are. But knowing does not motivate you to do something necessarily. Until you have an experience or have a close personal relationship with someone who has an experience and that moves you, and that's why it's called motivation, then you will not change or do something. It has to be important. It has to hit home for you or for someone that's close to you. And I, we all need motivation. I think humanly, we are lazy or we get tired. We like our comfort zone. Yeah, we, we get physically, we get tired. Mentally, we get tired and we slow down and we slack off. And it's not something that we mean to do. It's just physically, mentally, we get tired. And we can't do the day in and day out stuff all the time. And so we need motivation on a regular basis, whether we find that from something inside us or from watching a show on TV we need something to spark in us that motivation to light that match to get the fuel burning to get us going and i think that's just human nature that's why we live in families that's why we live in neighborhoods and communities and societies that's why we gather together because we feed off of each other's motivation to get things done we want to hear what other people's experiences are we want to see what makes them tick what gets them out of bed every day, get work done, and then get back home alive and well. And I think that's just human nature. We need that motivation. And it could be through something political that you're behind. It could be something religious you're behind. But you need to find what those principles are in your life that motivates you. And a lot of times, it's other people 
that helps spark that motivation. So I, I see, I, I can see like these TV shows and stuff being a good thing for some people because they need that motivation to kickstart them, to get it going. Um, other people are probably just watching it for entertainment. And going, <laughs> this, this lady is crazy. You know, what is she doing? I'm not going to, you know. You're not going to thank your t-shirt? Yeah, that, it's just, and, and for me, when I first heard about it, um, and I, I watched some of it, I was like, okay, yeah, there's probably some things that I should be doing in my home that are, you know, that should be a little more organized. But boom, there you go. They've already set that spark just because they've had that show and then there's people talking about it and I'm not going to be, you know, a fan of it and follow it religiously. But now it's in my mind, the power of suggestion, right? Now it's in there. And now every time now I go to put an article of clothing away or put some papers in a, a file drawer or, you know, put the scissors away. I'm like, you know, there could be a better way. Mm. And now I'm going to start thinking about what that better way is. And because that's my situation, that's my drawer, that's my cupboard, that's my shelf where I put, you know, my shoes or something. It's like, okay, yeah, there is probably a better way. And now I've, I've been motivated. So I think there's, I would posit that there's different levels of knowing, right? What you're talking about that you have is awareness. You're aware of this existing, right? It doesn't motivate you yet, so you don't know it to the next level. You're just kind of aware of it. And it might come up, and you might be a little opportunistic about it, where, uh, like I was talking about, you might be aware of health issues and or that you want to lose weight. And so you're sitting at the restaurant looking at the menu, and maybe in that moment you remember, huh, I should probably eat healthy, right? But it's not something that you're like, I had a brother who died from obesity, right? It's just like, oh, no, I know I should. I know I should tidy up this drawer, and if I got a chance to do it, I'll do it. But then the next level is that, like you were mentioning before, a personal relationship with that issue, right? It's kind of like the, the ALS ice bucket challenge thing where it's like, there's a core group of people who know someone with ALS or who are experiencing it for themselves. And that is so important to them, right? To find a cure. And so they're going to start this fad ice bucket challenge thing to the whole point was to raise money for research, right? But then it kind of turned into this thing where people were just like, oh yeah, ice bucket challenge. I'm going to throw water on myself. Yeah. And the, the whole donation and pledging of money, the idea was you pledge money for me to dump ice water on myself, right? It's kind of like a the, the carnival. Yeah. yeah. Throw the ball and dunk that. Yeah, the dunk tank. Well, <laughs> even if you ask most people today what the ice back challenge was all about. Will they even mention ALS? They, they may not even know, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I remember this you know, actor or actress or the singer or someone popular who did it. But why did they do it? I don't know. But it's funny watching them do it. Right. All the all the videos of the fails of the Ice Bucket Challenge <laughs> yeah. probably got more attention than the actual cause behind it. Right? People trying to run up and surprise someone with an ice bucket and tripping and falling on their face and pouring it on themselves. Like that got more views than... And they, hopefully <laughs> they made money on those more views and donated to it. Yeah. 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 Certainly. No doubt. But... No, but yeah, that's that's kind of the concept behind it is that um, for for a certain core of people, that was very important. Knowing was more than just being aware. It was being involved in it, being motivated by it, having an awareness beyond just, I know that that exists and that it's a bad thing and we should probably do something about it. It was, I know what this can do to you. I know how this can affect your life. And that's why this is so important to me. That's why I'm willing to do this stupid, silly thing to try and get views, to try and drum up money for this cause. Other people just maybe wanted to have something interesting to put on Facebook or Instagram. You know, didn't really, they were aware of the, the, the fad, but not necessarily knowing the cause. I, you know, it's, what's interesting, as you mentioned, Jason, when you're, basically saying we're, we're social creatures. There, there's a reason for us to be in social relationships, situations, and sometimes social 
uh, pressure or peer pressure is an, is a motivator, right? But then maybe the cause becomes more entrenched in us and it becomes more important than just the social aspect. And I think just like behavior, there's a maturity ladder, you know, even as there is with learning, you know, a child learns to mimic. They mimic whatever you're doing when they're a baby. Then they learn to try and then they learn to ask why. And then they start experiencing, they don't just, they know how to cry when something's comfortable and they are happy when something's fine, right? And we're using just like two things to communicate. Crying and screaming, I gotta check. Diaper, food, you know, all these things. Not crying and screaming, let's take a picture and put it on Facebook, right? Everything's happy, right? Um, but then they grow up and then they begin to experiment and then your job is to kind of corral them so they can experience things but not do anything fatal. Yeah, go, go play outside, but don't go play by the ditch where there's a huge uh, shards of metal on the other end, uh, you know, when you're three, right? You, you, you know, we use these boundaries. and Huey lives in a rough neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> tough place. But, but as you get older, as a parent, you can relax those boundaries and they are more self-aware. You know, what dangers are, how to deal with them, how to judge situations. And until a point where they may then teach you and they may teach you all, all along the way. But that was one of the things for me is my perspective completely changed when I became a parent. When I had kids, it was one of those moments where my motivations are very different now in the way I work, in how I act, in how I take care of myself. You know, I started when my first son was born, I started exercising and losing weight and being more health conscious because I wanted to do things with my son. I didn't want him to want to do something and then either my weight or my health would be a reason why I couldn't participate, you know? Because I, I, I valued that, I felt that would be important for me. And, and you know, now we do jiu-jitsu together and we have fun and we practice and, and it's, and, and the motivation was very different, you know? I see people that go to jiu-jitsu class and you have the competitors, the ones that, I wanna be a competitor, I wanna gain medals, I wanna be as good as I can be. And then you have others that are, I just want to stay in shape and this is a great exercise, right? And then you have others that are, I want some good self-defense. I, I don't you know, wanna be a victim, you know, that's a motivation, that's true. And others that my kid's doing it, so I'll do it because I'm waiting here anyway, right? Um, you know, and, and none of those motivations is wrong. The only time is wrong is when your motivation doesn't meet your, your goals. What, what do you want, you know? and where you're headed. And I think that's where being mindful, knowing about yourself, knowing what you really want and being able to create a goal and a plan to getting there. Um, then that change is much easier to stick if you have a vision, if you have a purpose. You know? Well, I think it's important that, that everyone take time to identify what their motivator is because if it's true that knowing is not enough, and if you look at yourself and you say, honest stock, honest introspection, there's some stuff I should probably improve or change about myself, which by the way, everyone should be able to say that. Um, there's always something you can improve or, or, or do better. And so then you say, okay, that's what, if I know that and I haven't done it yet, I'm lacking motivation. So what's my motivation? What's my motivator? For you, it was having a child. That was more motivating for you than just for your own self. And so if everyone takes the time to kind of take stock, what are the things I want to improve? And what's going to be my motivator to push me in that direction, right? What is it? If it's money, fine, let it be money. If it's uh, a loved one, if it's... Um, Self-preservation, I don't think it really necessarily matters all that much. Is there something that your motivation shouldn't be? Should you be motivated by fear? Because <laughs> fear does... It's a great motivator. <laughs> you know, certain news outlets prey on people's fears. <laughs> you know, they sell almost fear. Yeah. Like, you have to do this, you buy some gold coins, you know, they mm -hmm. collapse. And, and it's like, should you or should you be a good husband? 
you know, should you pay your debts? You know, like, I don't know. For me, one fear I, that does motivate me is, I'll give you an example, is if everyone else did it. So I look at something as simple as littering. You know, if, if I litter, if I throw this candy wrapper, I just throw it out my window. It's probably okay. It's not gonna collapse the universe. But if everyone littered, how would our cities look? How would our streets look? You know? And there are people that literally litter. <laughs> literally yeah. litter all the time. There's a book tale, and You see right them there. and they throw it out the literally. window. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of countries, people just grab their garbage and throw it out the backyard into down a hill into a valley. Because there isn't a mechanism, or there is, but you know. They don't have access. Right. I, I don't think fear should ever be a motivator. I think fear is a tool in getting your attention and stopping you to stop, look around, be aware, and go, okay, this is a problem. So fear has a, a part or a piece in motivation, but you shouldn't continue fearing after that. You should make the changes, you know, because you desire to protect yourself or to be better or to make a change and then have peace with that change and then back it up with all your might, mind and strength and go after it and then put fear aside. Say, yeah, fear woke me up. It stopped me in my tracks and it, it showed me, yeah, there's probably a better way. So are you saying that fear can help you do something, prepare, maybe prepare for something. But once you're prepared, you shouldn't live in a state of fear. That's right. Right? Well, every, every action you take after that should be to eliminate the fear. Yes. To eliminate the need to feel that way. Right? Yeah. This came up. Yeah, that could be a problem. Okay, let's make a plan to eliminate that even as a problem anymore. Then we won't have to worry about it. Then we won't fear it. Right? It'll still be there. You still may worry about it here and there, but you should feel more comfortable that you have actually made a change now and you're on a path that it shouldn't be a problem. Is, it, is there a point where yeah, are there certain motivations that we should say no to? I've, I've met individuals who have every New Year's, they are yapping and yapping about their New Year's resolution and they cannot shut up about it. And I know in a week or two, it's not going to be anymore, right? Or, they, or they're very good at dabbling in a lot of things, either employment or they're, they're always, they always need something. I always, either material things, like I always need a new pair of shoes, I always need this, I always need the latest iPhone or something, or I always need something, some fat, something that I'm, that, well, now it's doTERRA oils, now it's guacamole paste on my face, now it's, you never stuck with one long enough to master it. You just dabble in a lot of things. And people do it in employment, they do it in relationships, they just churn through relationships as if they're rooting through a sack of gold trying to find, you know, the right one. And it's, and, and, I, and I see that all the time, people who, uh, they reach the end of their life and they're kind of bitter and they're like, well, there was no one in the world I was compatible with. And it's like, really? Or are you so incompatible? No one was compatible with you. <laughs> we, and no one tells them that. We all just, you know, we all just kind of skirt around it, but you never really say, no, the problem is you. You're the problem. So they're, they're looking for instant gratification or at least a speed of gratification, which is important when you're making a change because you you want to see an outcome different, right? That's why we make change. We're not happy with this state. Let's make a change until I'm happy. And they're trying everything and they're still not happy, so there's a need not being met. Yeah. So is that their fault or have they just not found or not looking in the right place. Why Why do we know better but don't act better? And we can say it's a lack of motivation or it's a lack of understanding or you don't know what you're, you don't have vision of what you actually want so you're just kind of floundering everywhere, right? 
And it could be a combination of all those things or an even more. I, I think what you just said, they don't have vision. They don't have a goal. So if they're bouncing around from thing to thing, they really don't know what that end goal is. And so they don't know what steps to take to get to that end goal. They haven't stopped and said, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, it, let's take an example of a person who maybe they, they get a new job every two weeks. And um, at some point, maybe part of their goal is, I want to go work 50 different type of jobs. And that's fine, but there also needs to be some sort of boundary to your goal that says, okay, what lets you know when you find one? How will you know what the right job is for you? And at, you know, in this time frame, you have to set some sort of time frame. What if the answer is no to all of them? What's the plan then? You know, there, there has to be a plan in mind, something, because it, it's not necessarily bad if, if you jump through 700 different jobs in your life and that's what you wanted and you were happy, right? It is bad when you complain about it or you act as if everything's a struggle or you're just mooching off other people. You know, there's a, you know, for me, at least with my close friends, I don't care if they complain, you know, but they know if they complain, they're opening the door for me to tell them what I think, <laughs> you know? It, it, and that's like with my really close friends, you know, you, they can say, oh, look at this. And, and if I notice something, dude, that's ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. And that's fine. Uh, but there are people that open up to the world as if, oh, you know, life is so hard or oh, I want to start doing this. But they don't want any input. They don't want any correction. They just want blind um blind sheep to be their chorus to cheer them on right and it's like i cannot continue to cheer you on when you don't stick to anything when you haven't amounted to anything or where you do, where you keep flip-flopping left and right through everything in life well there's like just like knowing there's different levels um it's like saying i know i need to get a job so i i'm gonna get one good i got a job well i don't like it or it's not working. So, but I know I need to have one. And so you go get a different one. And that's great. But then you never get to the next level of knowing what kind of job. Where is this job going to take you? What is the end object, objective of all of this? Right? How is this preparing you for your ultimate goals at the end? And that goes for really anything, right? I know I need to go to school. So I'm in school. Okay, but what are you doing? I don't know yet, but I'm in school. Okay, for a while, that's probably okay. Get your bearings, figure out what it is that you enjoy, what you like. But after a while, you kind of need to say, all right, here's my end objective. Here's my my long play, you know? Here's what I, I, I want in the in the long term. The short-term things have to be leading you towards that. And you got to know what the long-term thing is. You have to know it. And you have to be aware of it and be reminding yourself constantly along the way, yeah, you know what? This job sucks. Or these classes, I'm never going to use math ever again, which is a lie. I have used it. But I'm never going to use math ever again, right? But it's a stepping stone to what I ultimately want, knowing that you just need to be in school or need to have a job isn't really good enough. You got to know the next level. You got to know what is the point of all of this. Yeah, in inversely, sometimes some things can be good enough if that's the objective. You know, if someone just says, you know, I, I left, I left my college unfinished, and now it's twenty years, and I'm like fifty something years old. And I just need to take a couple more classes and I can just get my degree. Even though it's not going to ultimately change my life, I just want to finish it. I want to put a cap on that jelly jar and just close it, right? And you can do that and everyone around you can celebrate because they knew that was what you were aiming out to do, right? So I think a lot, like what you said when you were talking, it just made me think you have to know yourself. Uh, you cannot know what you want until you know yourself and what's important and what you value and what you believe in. I think in conclusion, we want to just say, 
it's important that we understand that just knowing is not enough, just as in the business world, telling isn't training. Like everyone has different mechanisms that trigger motivation for them, you know? And there isn't one that's better than another. The only, the only time motivation fails is when you choose not to use it anymore. When, when you have a goal, whatever motivation for you to achieve that goal is fine, you know? If you're gonna use your family, if you're gonna use your faith, if you're gonna use embarrassment, you just don't wanna be in a bad situation and you wanna be prepared, that's fine and dandy, right? But I think what I, what I learned from, from, from this topic and thinking and reading more about it was, you really have to know yourself. You have to know what's your goal or your vision or your success criteria, right? And then only then can you have the correct motivation to get there. You know, if, if you don't have an end in sight, then you'll feel very much as if things are only happening to you and you're not making things happen. For me, my motivation in many ways is a, a bigger picture. I, I want to see certain things happen in my life in the long run. Um, but day to day, what gets me, what makes me tick, so to speak, what gets me out of bed and gets me going and gets me motivated to do the best I can every day is my family, my wife and my daughter. That's, that's why I do pretty much everything that I do. That's why I go to work every day. That's why I do the best I can there. And that's what I'm, I've latched onto. That's super important to me, their, their well-being and being able to provide for them. And in turn, what they, what they bring to me, the happiness that they bring to me. I think it's really important that everyone take a minute and identify what the, what it is that they want in their lives and then identify what their motivator is. And if you can't, if you're having a hard time with that, that might be a good opportunity to speak to people that you're close to and say, hey, you know, this is what I want and I'm struggling to find the motivation to, to take on that challenge. It's going to be really difficult. I really want it, but it's going to be really hard. Can you help me identify What's going to be my guiding star? What's my compass? You know, what's going to keep me driving in that direction nonstop? When I was a kid, my favorite cartoon was G.I. Joe. And at the very end of every episode, they would say, and now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And that's really true. It's only half the battle. I mean, you have to know it, but now go out and do it. Thanks for listening uh, to The MindSpark. You can find us on Facebook at The MindSpark Podcast. Also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, make sure you follow us so you can get updates on when the next episode might come out and uh, new interesting topics we'll be discussing. Also, feel free to leave comments. Keep them civil. But uh, leave comments, questions, anything to contribute to the conversation as well. I don't know. I don't know that they have to be simple. Okay, just leave a comment. <laughs> you can be messed up as you want, but it's coming back to you. <laughs> just know that if you ask Keely for advice, you're going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> I can either be friend, your friend or I can be nice to you. You're just like... This episode is brought to you by Geo <laughs> <Mattel> Company. <laughs>